We're going to move into a time of teaching. If you have your Bible with you, bonus, if you have an app with the Bible on it, or you can pull it up, that'd be great. Uh, Ephesians 4, and we're going to jump to a Galatians uh, chapter 5 as well, and that's where we'll be spending some time, and uh, there's even in Psalm uh, 86, 16, but you don't have to worry about it because I gave you a piece of paper that has the full text on it from Ephesians 4, and so you will, I wanted you to have this before you the whole time so you can study and reference it. There is some fill-in-the-blank stuff because I want to keep you engaged. And it, it fills in from the bottom up, okay? Bottom up. I'm just, just giving you a fair warning. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So, we're about to uh, introduce this vision of Lakeland for the next three years. That's what we're doing right now. The challenge this morning then, at the end of our time, is going to be straightforward. You don't have to answer yes or no to it. You have to just simply choose to take a journey. And the straight ahead uh, proposal from me to you this morning is simply this. Will you and your family and your friends embrace the vision of Lakeland Community Church for the next three years? Your, your thing then is to say, yes, I will, or I need to have more information, or no, I won't. So, this starts a journey. Let's set the stage then for this three-year vision of Lakeland. Allow me to take you then through a Bible study this morning. For really a long time, this Ephesians chapter 4 has been rolling around in my head. It's, it's deeper than even what I'm going to present to you, what I keep thinking about it, and by deeper means confusing to me as I've been working on this for a very, very long time. I would say even eight to ten years I've been chewing on this very passage because it has something to do with who are we and who is the church and how do we belong and what is our identity even as people, as human beings, as Christians. So this is uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesians in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a city on the coast of the Aegean Sea. If you go across the Aegean Sea, uh, for your direction, it'd be this way. Uh, you'll run into Athens over there. This is written around 58 AD. It's about 25 years after Jesus' resurrection. So the church is well underway for those couple of uh, dozen years there or so. And Paul is writing, actually it's a little different timber than some of his other letters for those guys, you guys who know the Bible. You'll find that it's more general and broad and feels more like an, um, like a, like a teaching itself as opposed to a personal letter. So we jump right in here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So on the piece of paper there or on the screen, I think we have it up there for you. Paul speaking. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then here comes these words that we all said together earlier as we called ourselves to worship. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Verse 7. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, and now he's quoting Psalm 86, When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. 
And then Paul says parenthetically there in verse 9. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descends is the same as the one who ascends far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Lot there, 16 verses, and not lightweight stuff, rather chunky. I call this then, I totally made this up, I call this the Ephesians 4 sandwich. The Ephesians 4 sandwich, and that's why you're starting at the bottom on your fill-in-the-blank stuff. The first slice of bread that you're going to lay down to make this Ephesians 4 sandwich is, uh, is, is this, the worthy life. Verses 1 through 3. Start off the sandwich by saying, here we find Paul begging Christians. He's begging them. Lead a worthy life. Fill in the blank, worthy. Humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He's giving you a list of things, brothers and sisters, in which to strive for. This is who you are supposed to be. This is what it means to be Christian, to be living a worthy life. The first slice of the sandwich. It sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, if you're familiar with that. Over in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. I'm not putting it on the screen. It's not printed there. You'd have to look it up on your Bible. But there are nine fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, personally, in my studies, I don't think it's actually just limited to nine, precisely because here in Ephesians 4, he doesn't quote the same exact list. There's some overlap, but there's actually differences involved in the thing. Here in Ephesians, we find four. He has humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance or forbearing love, unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's a worthy life. The fruit of the Spirit would actually be larger than just nine features. Here, if you add the whole thing together, I think we end up with about 11 or 12. And the list could go on. It's not just limited down to love, which we so easily drift into these days. The worthy life is much larger than just simply love. These are the marks of Christianity. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, peace, this is the salt and the salt shaker, everyone. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. This is what it looks like when he gets legs and walks out. You can judge a Christian not just by their love, but by the entire package. They will know us by our love. Oh, they're going to know you a lot by a whole lot more, especially these days. When love has become so cheap or, on the other hand, it's become so precious that all that matters is love. But what quality of love is it? What's it look like? 
You can see it's, it's joy and peace and patience and kindness, generosity, humility, gentleness. A love that forbears, he says here in Ephesians 4. That is a love that puts up with, a love that is enduring. It's, it's not on, on a, a short fuse. It, it endures with other people, with those that we disagree with. Because what do we find in our current day? What is the nature of our culture and our society these days? Very short-fused, very polarized, black and white, left and white, left and right, conservative, progressive, Democrat, Republican. And here we are, the most affluent society in the world, and we can't get along. We have everything. What have we lost? I propose we've lost the worthy life. Of course, I'm talking only to Christians here because who would expect that out of the world? My opinion is this. If you encounter individual Christians in your life, they're all good people. They're loving, they're kind, they exhibit forbearing love and all this. You know, individual Christians, they're cool. My friends are cool. Your friends are cool. You know, it's all good. What? in the world then happens when people get online they turn into these impersonal jerks they they get weird something happens there i don't know what happens their heart falls out or something and all of this fruit of the spirit is no longer there you know and and suddenly we all get lumped into some like we're all being swept down some river of hate and and malice and bitterness and um, some political group or social media something or other is telling us what to think. We're no longer listening to the Spirit. We're listening to the culture around us. And it's not good, and it's not turning out good people. It's not a worthy life at all. It's mean-spirited, and it's hateful, and it's belligerent, and it's intolerant. Wait, don't, don't let me come up with a list. Let's go to the Apostle Paul's list over in Galatians because right before the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 are verses 19 and 20. And right there he tells you what are the works of the flesh? What does it look like to be worldly? And he says this in Galatians 5, 19 through 20. The works of the flesh are obvious. Yeah, they are, Paul. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, things like this. Pastor's sitting in bars. So, you know, <laughs> it's easy to see the bad, hard to achieve the good, the worthy life. In my opinion, Christians have succumbed to the secular age. We have succumbed to what a generation or two ago called worldliness. That's who we're listening to. Not the spirit. Not the one life. Spirit-filled Christians are a breath of fresh air. It is spirit-filled Christians who actually change the world. Bitter, hateful, belligerent Christians do not change the world. Self-righteous, moralizing, worldly Christians just polarize the world. They split people apart instead of bring people together. Of course, in response to this, is even a younger generation who's saying, like, Psh, Christians, I'm done with that thing. I'm done with the church. I'm done with Christianity. I'm out of here. 
And what are they going to do? Go off and then live with the secular worldliness? The very source and the fount of the things that gave us all the stuff Paul just talks about? The very source and fount of hate and fear and power and unforgiveness and intolerance and belligerent judgmentalism? All in the name of love or freedom? I was alarmed last fall when I saw some progressives stating this. There is no forgiveness for the unforgivable. There is no forgiveness for the unforgivable. Well, no, duh. If someone's unforgivable, I'm sure there's no forgiveness for them. Really? Christianity has no unforgivables. Christianity has no enemies. We follow a man who allowed people to drive spikes through his hands and his feet and stab him in the side with a spear while praying to God, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing when he knew exactly that they knew exactly what they were doing. And then he died. That's who we follow. Not power. blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel Christianity has no unforgivables you know the weirdest thing is in the sanctuary right now we have liberals smugly thinking that they're none of these worldly things and we have conservatives smugly thinking that they're none of these worldly things and so at least we can agree on that it's not us, it's them. It's always somebody else. It's never me. What, me? I'm, I'm good. And it reminds me of the old famous cartoon, Pogo, long gone, who said, we have met the enemy, and the enemy is us. What can be done? What is the cure for a schismatic, polarized, split society? What can Christians do about it? What's the solution to rid Christians of secularism and worldliness? What can be done? So let's get to the meat of the Ephesians 4 sandwich. Here comes tofu for you vegans. But let's get to the meat, the protein of the Ephesians 4 sandwich. Here it is, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, uh, through all and in all. Is there a word repeated in here anywhere? It might be one. Oneness, the whole one. The, the meat of the matter for Paul in Paul's theology is oneness. Our one life together. That is the solution to a broken world. The church is the hope of the world. The church bound together under the one allows us to change the world around us. When it doesn't treat itself as one, it begins to polarize things. It is the oneness that changes the world. Our one body, our one spirit, our one hope, our one calling, our one Lord, our one faith, our one baptism, our one God and Father and all. Spirit, Lord, and Father. By the way, for all you theologically bent type people, which I assume most of us if you're in church, notice here this early uh, Trinity form, Trinitarian form. 
It's right there in the text. Uh, it's kind of an insignificant thing. You notice that there is Spirit, Lord, and Father. Paul does this oftentimes, by the way, where he refers to Jesus as Lord. And in the context, that would have been who is your Lord means who is your master. Not a popular word these days, of course. But so you have the Holy Spirit. You have Jesus as master, your Lord, right? And then you have God, who is what? The creator, the in all and through all, the one that everything sources everything. So here you have, and Paul does this fluidly as a good Jew, as a Pharisee. He has no problem. You say, oh, this is polytheism. Like, no, 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 not for, not for a Jew. This is monotheism, and he's simply describing God. He's saying it's, there is spirit, there is the Lord, there is the Father. Anyway, that's sort of an aside. But it's important to pay attention to here because he's saying it's all one. This is how you describe the one God. Spirit, Lord, Father. Woven together into a unified one, into a body. What transforms us then, everyone, is not our individual effort and morality and willpower, as important as those things are. You are not an island. It is not up to you to change the world. It is up to us as one. And when we are bound together as one in the church, as the body of Christ, together with the Spirit, Lord, the Father, when we are that one thing, we are an unstoppable force. This is how change happens, everyone. This is how you go from being this private individual, you know, thumbing along on your phone, angry, to becoming a world changer. And doing something about things around you. When we bind ourselves together. The answer to the world's problems is the one life we share with God. Elsewhere, Paul says we're like a human body so that the eye cannot say, this is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Elsewhere, Paul says we're like a human body so that the eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you. Or the foot can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. We are one. The notion of our oneness is not just some optional thing, like some pep talk asking us all to be kind and say please and thank you to each other. No, this oneness is what actually makes us well beyond loving. It makes us forbearing. A forbearing love that is powerful because it puts up with. It embraces. It allows you to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Only after establishing this meat in Ephesians, in this sandwich of mine, does Paul then add the top piece of bread to the sandwich, beginning with verse 7. But to each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. But to each. It's that that word but that stopped me over the years. And uh, just for eighth grade grammar class, which I don't remember either, but I read about it. It's not a conjunction. The word but here is not being used as a conjunction. It's actually being used as an adjective, and it's a cardinal. I don't remember that at all, which means it's a number, which means it counts. That's why it says, but to each one. Here is where your individual self comes in after Paul arranges this whole thing about our oneness with God. Now comes you, the individual, following it. But to each one, what do you get? You get a gift of grace. You have a measure of it. You receive grace. You received a gift. And those roles that are given, the pastors and evangelists and all that sort of thing, they are not the ones doing the ministry. They are equipping the saints for ministry. 
They're like the janitor keeping the building clean. <laughs> they don't run the business. The people run the business. They take on a servant's role. So this top slice of the sandwich here is mature living. Mature living, fill in the blank, mature. This full stature in Christ, not blown around by politicians and celebrities and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, Fox and CNN, or any other secular voice or bankrupt theology or doctrine or any other tickle our ear stuff. None of that. That's not how we change the world. It's not the secular left's ideology, and it's not the right's desire for freedom. It's the voice of the Spirit. And neither one of those, left or right, exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, especially when it's hateful and unrelenting and unforgivable. Oh, yeah, and Paul validates this oneness, this go-between binding of heaven and earth with a little special sauce. Yes, my sandwich has a special sauce. And the special sauce is right there in Psalm 86, where, I mean, it's quoted in there by Paul, where he says, Jesus is the go-between special sauce. It doesn't actually say that. He says, Jesus ascends and he descends. Jesus is the binder because Jesus is the only one who has been to heaven as well as earth. As one of us, this is Christmas, right? The incarnation as well as the resurrection. That's what makes the sandwich good. Right there. Christ ascending and descending. Binds the thing together. Jesus is the one who belongs to both heaven and earth. He's the special sauce that pulls the sandwich together. That's the Bible study. That's the foundation for one life. It's, it's chunky stuff. It's a good sandwich. And we even get into the rest of the passages down there, verses 11 on down. Great stuff going on in there. Except for the fact, if we just sum it up real quick, it's simply saying, be mature. So it starts with worthy, right? And ends with maturity. That's your bread. Now, brothers and sisters, this biblical foundation is this one life we live together. If this begins to sound foreign, And if this sounds weird, if it sounds impossible, it's simply because Americans value so highly our private, personal, inalienable right to freedom that we cannot accept something that says, I'm not captain of my own ship. How dare you propose the fact that I am not, you know, my own destiny? I have rights. Well, you know, that's a really recent invention of about 250, maybe 300 years ago. (laughs) I mean, thank God for freedom. Don't get me wrong. But nonetheless, the idea that we are not God is a foreign idea to the American mind. We believe it's all about us. And this text clearly says it is not all about you. You have simply been given a gift of grace and a calling It's really all about all of us as one. Better to speak into the American ideology of saying like, think of citizen. We are all citizens. Paul even uses that word. We're citizens of heaven. 
That's what we really are. This, then, everyone, is how we change the world. This idea that we subjugate, just to use a fancy term, that we, we come under the one of the church of God is how we become powerful people. The church has embraced five 36-month-long financial challenges since 2004. Fifteen years and millions of dollars have been gifted well beyond normal tithes and offerings around here. This has become our vision, everyone. Every 36 months, we dive in once again and we re-up and we think, what are we going to do to change the world this time? What are we going to invest in? Rather than complaining about it or thinking about it or saying, I can't believe and how dare you? We jump in silently, quietly, not without being with no sort of celebrity or anything else. Which, by the way, celebrity Christians an oxymoron, right? Celebrity Christians an oxymoron. You know, we dive in and do what we do. This is our vision. So I introduce to you one life, our church's vision for the next three years. These financial challenges have pushed us into serious discipleship. I've come to understand, unwillingly, by the way, that money is a very, very, very powerful discipleship tool. It is the brass ring in our nose. Our money takes us wherever it wants, well, whatever the advertisements want to take you to. Just as my little girl sitting there watching the Chiefs game with me one day, and we were watching beer commercials, which is such a lovely father-daughter moment. And, and then some other stuff came on, some clothing and so forth, and she said, Daddy, I like watching advertisements because they tell me what I want. I, yes, they do, my dear. And then the car commercials came on, and I said, Mia, these commercials tell me what I want. No, I'm kidding. So um, <laughs> money is a powerful discipleship tool, everyone. And what we've done of these financial challenges is push against it and choose a different lifestyle and choose to be a different people and learn sacrifice for the sake of somebody else because we are one and we share this one life together. Because of these financial challenges, Lakeland looks more and more like Ephesians 4 all the time. Worthy, mature, and one with Jesus. And now one life is our next challenge. What the elders desire for us to do is take on over a dozen initiatives. Over a dozen. There's 15 this time. I just have a moment to give you an idea of three of them so you know what I'm talking about on this thing if you haven't been through one of these. First off, there's Annapra's Rice and Beans. Annapra's just below uh, the southern border of the U.S., just over by Juarez, which, by the way, used to be the most violent, dangerous city, and there's still all the repercussions of that. In a culture that, in our culture, that treats food as art, as a spectacle, as something, some sort of tasty morsel that we take a picture of and post, and then it's gone, where we have food shows about cupcakes and everything else and competitions to create the most crazy stuff. There are people just a few hours away from us who are actually struggling to feed their children one good meal a day. We step into that. We can't ignore that. And, and Annapolis Rice and Beans programs do that. Of course, it's taken us into their entire lives and into their community. We've created a library for them, community centers, changing the whole thing. It's drawing in a central whole idea of supporting people so kids actually get an education. You want to do something about people at the border? then give them a job, you know? Give them an education. Give them a leg up. It's the same thing in our inner city here. 
Do you want to do something about crime in our own backyard? Jobs, everyone. It's all about a job. Jobs create dads. And I am talking particularly dads, not just parents. And dads in a home change their inner city. And it creates stability. And crime goes down. Get people these sort of tools. Dozens of families are being taken care of with rice and beans and an APRA. Here's another one. One by one. It's a nice way of saying one by one. You guys get it? One by one. Down in the hill country of Jamaica is a ministry started by Lakelanders and others many, many years ago, even when Lakeland was just starting. It's called One by One. And I believe our very first mission trip, if I recollect right, at Lakeland was to take a whole bunch of us went down to uh, Jamaica. And you're back in the hill country. We're not talking like resorts and snorkeling or anything like that. We're talking like way back in the dirt floor part of the whole thing. And we all took two, like, I think it was 50 kilo uh, duffel bags full of our, you know, clothing and glasses and medicine and toiletries and shoes and everything else like that. And you, you, you took it all down there. And when you got on the plane to leave, you had your clothes on your back and your toothbrush. You just left it all there. Meanwhile, all day long out in the, the tropical heat, you built houses and took care of things and sorted clothing and worked and dug. And uh, I remember my my ankles and my heels after two days were green and purple and black. I had never seen my body like that from carrying sacks and sacks of cement mix up a hill all day long for a couple of days. Not that was interesting. And then at night, you're not done because you just hang out in the street and party with everyone because it's Jamaica, man, and there's a good beat. And the people come out because it cools off then, and you go hang out with them and learn people's lives. Well, we've, people have gone down there unofficially for years and years, but now we're getting official because there's a church there because Christianity, if you want to call it Christianity in Jamaica, is very fundamentalist. It's very hellfire and brimstone. It's all black and white. And so there's no grace. And Pastor Paul, who I think's picture uh, is there, this young man is bringing the message of grace to Harmon's Jamaica back in the hill country. And we're going to support him. We want to. And his church. And the tutoring center that's right there as well. This is what we're doing. And then lastly, here's the one that's not very sexy. And it's called the parking lot. Our parking lot out here. (laughs) And, uh, you know, over half of our financial challenge investments in ministry are investing right here in 913 Colburn Road, continuing to purchase the building and do some other major things around here. And um, we wouldn't be sitting here right now if it weren't for these financial challenges. We wouldn't be here. I don't know where we'd be, a movie theater, a banquet hall. I don't know where we'd be. But now we do church 24-7, and this place is open, and hundreds and hundreds of people come in here every week using our facility. That, that athletic field a few feet away from us is a hot, hot thing. Two weeks ago, you know, on Super Bowl Sunday, we had a barbecue party here. If you missed it, sorry. But I think it was the best party we ever did. This place was packed, and we, we, we overbought the barbecue and ran out. You guys eat barbecue. So what you found over in the athletic field, it was hopping. And I mean, literally, it was jumping. Literally, it was jumping. And then a, a bunch of ancient 40-year-old men and some women got over there, and they tried to run a 40-yard uh, dash full of pulled pork and beans and they gave it their all and that's all I got to say about that we couldn't have done it without this building 
and the building starts out at the parking lot. So when your friend or relative or in-laws or neighbor or coworker that you have asked to come to church for who knows how many times and then they're finally coming that Sunday morning when their tires roll into this parking lot you suddenly are this different person at Lakeland you're like is this place clean oh I'm so glad they cleaned the glass this morning wow look at the bathroom it's looking pretty good oh, there's a little spot over there you know and the children's ministry I hope they hold all the volunteers thing then things happen because they got little kids this is gonna be a really uh, important day and I sure hope Pastor Garrett's preaching this is gonna be really really good <laughs> I mean, you get all amped up. The week before, you're like, I don't care. You know, bathroom, there's no toilet paper. What do I care? (laughs) Not now. So then when the parking lot looks like, you know, an estuary, you know, with water and ice and salt and whatever's flowing across it, and the lines aren't there anymore, you're like, well, somebody ought to do something about that parking lot. And we are. We're going to resurface the thing. Because I believe the parking lot is missional. The parking lot says, I care about you, our guest at Lakeland, as well as everything else around here. We steward well because we believe others are worth it. It's not about us. I mean, it's cool to have a nice place for us, and we all appreciate it. But it's about the next person that comes in. That's just three examples of the things we're going to do with one life, okay, and that we hope to do over the next 36 months. This is how Lakeland Community Church understands the one life together. This is how we activate the Ephesians 4 sandwich. This is where it finds traction. This is what we start to do when we, when we read the words of Paul and we say, what do we do about that? This is it. We do a financial challenge like one life. This is how we put our, our hand to the plow, no turning back, and move. This is how we become one with the Spirit and with the Lord and God the Father who is all in all. This is how we measure out and implement our gift of grace. This is how we steward. This is how we level the ground at the foot of the cross. No longer left, right, progressive, or conservative. No longer polarized, just one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. That's Lakeland. That's all we're doing. We don't need to be celebrities. We don't need to be famous. We don't need a medal or a badge or a sticker. We just do the job. We get the job done. That's our one life. And it only happens when we're all one. And that's why I wanted to lay down this biblical foundation for this thing. Amen.